Welcome to the Newsletter Operator Podcast. I'm Matt McGarry. And I'm Ryan Carr. And in this podcast, we teach you exactly how to build, grow, and monetize your newsletter. We'll talk to the best newsletter operators, creators, and media founders in the space, breaking down their strategies and growth tactics. Awesome. Let's get into it. Hello, Ethan Brooks. Hey, what's going on? How are you man? doing, man? We're really excited to, to catch up and chat through some of the stuff that you work on, that you're working on now and have worked on in the past. So, thanks, man. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, looking forward to it. Definitely, it's uh, it's been a minute. It has been. Last time, I think you and I spoke. I think I was on the podcast that you were hosting, Copy Blogger. And it's going to be uh, it's going to be tough to live up to Ethan Brooke interview standards, but we'll give it a shot. <laughs> oh, come on. That's that's OK, because it's like a two way. It's a two way street, man. I, I am sitting with two growth legends here about to talk about newsletters. So I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm the one in the hot seat, not you. <laughs> and maybe one thing we should say is we all work together at the hustle or trends, yep. but we all kind of work separately, maybe like different business units, maybe you'll call it. And so, Ethan, would you describe yourself as like editorial or like what what your role, what was your role at Trends slash The Hustle? Sure. Yeah, definitely editorial. And I'm not sure I ever would have known the difference between that and like other types of writing before I got there. But it is interesting that you mentioned it because I think from the outside, maybe it isn't always so clear just how divided the teams inside of a media company can be. Like The Hustle, Trends, very successful publication but for as, as successful as it was I mean Brian and I were joking on my show like we, we quote unquote worked together for like two years and I think the longest conversation we ever had was after he had left the company and was on the podcast so yeah I was definitely more on the editorial side very little to do with growth very little to do with even copywriting for trends almost exclusively focused on the stories. It, it seems to make sense to have editorial marketing business operations separate for a media company. But like, I wish we interacted more because we've become like friends after this, but like yeah. we would have had so many fun conversations and maybe sparked ideas at the hustle too. I don't know. I don't know how media companies could do that better because it seems like everything's just so separated there. And like editorials on this, this totally separate area, marketing, everything is. I'm kind of curious what that was like from your perspective as growth guys, because so I could kind of imagine you know, there's there's a world in which as the as the growth guys, you're kind of you're running the business, right? Like you're in charge of getting new readers to the website and converting those people. So like what was it like to deal with editorial teams who were kind of creating stuff that you didn't always have a ton of insight into? Like it was almost like the newsletter just comes out and then you kind of kind of just work with whatever the editorial team gives you. What is like what is that like? And are writers are writers a bunch of drama queens? Because certainly seems like they could be. <laughs> no, I mean I'll speak. I'll speak from my perspective. It's funny because you said we, day to day we didn't have a ton of direct interaction or conversations. But Ethan, I would say you and the editorial team were more part of the growth team than you thought or might have known at the time, because the the content that you were creating, whether it was designed this way or not, was very very easy to pull directly from and use for growth purposes. So an example is, and, and I'm looking forward to getting into the blogs that, that I see you're writing for Hampton now too, because I think they kind of mirror this same style where it's pulling somebody's story, a, a founder story or a trends member story. And I mean, some of the, some of the stats that are in those stories, like this guy makes 300, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but this guy makes 300 million a year, like selling t 
tea bags on Amazon or something like that. You know, that kind of stuff, the, the content that you guys were writing was so easy to pull from, really made a lot of the growth processes that much easier. So I always, especially with the trends team, because, and I don't know if it was a style guideline that was set by anybody, but it was always very almost growth oriented by design. Do you think that could be like deconstructed and used in other media companies? Because like you said, trends was pretty much about business growth to begin with. So our stories were were kind of eye catching by design. But like, what what do you think it was? Was it just the headlines that you were pulling out of them that were so eye catching? Or was it the topic? And do you think that that's something that like other writers, I'm trying to think about like, you know, I know writers who write a roundup of news on the manufacturing industry or something like that. Is there, is it the type of story that like is kind of universally interesting where they just pick somebody in the industry and kind of deconstruct how it is that they do what they do? Or do you think that was just kind of like uniquely a trends thing and other, other newsletters just have it harder? Yeah. I mean, a, a cop-out answer for that, I think would be just good content is good content. So if you have writers who are creating good content that you can like poach and use for growth stuff, I think that that's, um, it's always going to draw readership and draw people that are going to want to read more. But I do think that trends was uniquely positioned in that people want to hear success stories because it makes it feel possible for them. And so by just pulling success stories out of the trends community and saying, these are the kinds of people that are in here and are talking about their experience and are sharing knowledge. It was like a really easy mechanism for growth sense. or a really, a really straightforward Did your team ever look growth. at like page views or like what articles got, I get for trends, it's all paywalled. So it was kind of hard to look at, but maybe for the hustle, like what articles got the most traffic or other metrics related to that, that like you kind of see like, okay, this is what people are responding to. We'll write more like this or we'll take inspiration from it. Definitely. But you know, what's funny about this. I was just having this conversation with Tim over at copy blogger too. So we definitely did that. But I almost as a rule, anytime we tried to design content based on what had worked really well in the past, it never worked. And then the same, like the corollary to that was anytime something seemed like it wasn't going to work or not, anytime something was surprisingly popular, it was very often something that I didn't think was going to work at all. And so there's this weird thing about like what really hits where I haven't been able to find things that are super super repeatable, maybe a few patterns. So we know certain things tend to be more popular, like for the trends audience, people really like playbooks. They like the super nitty gritty breakdowns of how people do things. And even specifically that wording, like the, you know, email marketing playbook or like TikTok growth playbook. If, if, if I'm going to be handing you some operators playbook, People really like that and it'll be, I would say, moderately popular, but the real runaway hits, I never found a good way to predict which ones they were going to be. You know who is good at that though is Zach. So for people listening, Zach's another guy who was on, we all work together. He's the guy who writes the Sunday stories at the hustle. So if you're listening to this, you're probably, you're probably more familiar with his work than you are with mine because Zach's work like spreads and he keeps a spreadsheet specifically on which stories he's written. Wow, what kind of visibility they got, what kind of traction they got. And it shows, man, every time I'm searching hacker news, like without fail on the first three pages, there's some hustle piece that Zach wrote, you know? So he was very diligent about that. We were a little bit less so. What we did pay attention to in terms of data, though, was like 
Yeah, I think it was mostly we, we paid a lot of attention to like what uh, which emails got opened a lot, so subject line stuff, and then we we would track specifically which links got clicked. Those weren't always stories, though. A lot of times, those were resources within stories, and that kind of helped us figure out what it was people even wanted to see more information on. You know, yeah, and it's tricky to determine, like, because the type of headline article for a paywalled publication like Trends is going to be different than the Hustle. So a lot of the Hustle Zach story, second the headlines were more curiosity inducing, whereas Trends was a, a different approach. It was like a, a benefit you would get out of reading it, for, like a playbook, for example. And so there's not there's not a formula for this, unfortunately. Maybe there is some. Maybe we should figure that out, but it's not perfect. That's a really good point, though. So that was sort of a double-edged sword. From the writer's perspective, it was really nice to work for a publication that essentially didn't rely on page clicks to stay alive, right? So the Trends is a paid publication. And what that really means from a business perspective is like we made our money whether or not anybody ever opened the email, it didn't matter. If you signed up for your subscription and, you know, we got paid for the year. And that was great. And it was also, that was kind of a win-win for the readers too, because it meant that we could go deep on subjects that most people will never cover. And so this is one of the kind of unique benefits of a paid newsletter for people who are thinking about going in that direction as like a creator. It does give you the flexibility, if you can build a big enough audience around it, to, to do that like deep dive, um, just better journalism. The flip side, though, is that in order to create a great user experience, you do give up some of the visibility to the data. So for us, we included the entire story in the newsletter as well. And one reason that stories didn't often get clicks is because the whole story is right in the email inbox. And that wasn't like that would be different if you were, you know, advertising on a website and that was what was driving revenue. Obviously, you'd want people back on the website as frequently as possible. We didn't need to do any of that. So yeah, data played a very different role for us. I think we weren't, what we did pay attention to in, in addition to like the links that people would click inside of a story is the feedback at the very end. And I'm curious to hear how that factored into your guys's world at all. If it did, I'm not sure. I'm not even sure if it did. Is that like the, um, the, the smiley faces? Is that one you're referring to? Yeah. Was that part of what you guys looked at at all? Not a ton for me. We definitely looked at traffic by articles. And so like if, a, if an article or like a Zach, a long from story that Zach did had a lot of traffic, we would use that in ads to showcase that and get people to click and subscribe. But not a ton of the feedback. It's kind of hard to, there was so much feedback and a lot of it, some feedback is like really hard to take something out of, right? As, as you know. Yeah. I want to segue to like, or basically continue getting into like the business of media companies or newsletters and talk about the newsletter guide. And I'll let, maybe I'll let Ryan like jump into, find a good place to start there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Ethan, I know you, you were working on what was going to be at the time trends guides. It, it was essentially turned into this guide to building newsletters. Would love to hear more about, I don't know how you came up with that idea for, for that being the, the first subject for the guide. Definitely. And then yeah, so this is one of those interesting about, stories about that sometimes that. tends to change over time. Like, you know how when a founder gets really successful, all of a sudden their founding story starts to change and it's less about like, Oh, I was tired of eating ramen and, now it's more about like the vision. I had a vision. Um, that's kind of how this one went too. I didn't want to do the newsletter guide for, for, for people listening that this is generally speaking, what I'm now known for in my career. Uh, as Ryan mentioned ever over at trends, we decided to write a guide to the newsletter industry. So I spent, I mean, basically the bulk of the last two years interviewing operators across the entire newsletter space. So both of these guys, along with 
founders, technical leads, heads of growth at like dozens of publications. That idea came to us at a time when we were basically trying to figure out what was next for trends. So at Trends in the Hustle, you have the Hustle, which is like a free newsletter. Then Trends was about 300 bucks a year. And then we were trying to figure out what was going to be like the high price thing that we could upsell Trends members to. And we actually had two ideas at the time. And it's kind of ironic the way things panned out. But the two, the two different ideas were one was going to be a mastermind group. And so we actually ran a test of this. We invited a whole bunch of media people to an online mastermind and facilitated like a roundtable discussion. And then the other option was long form research based industry guides. And I was actually much more in the roundtable camp for one reason being that I come from a community building background and I kind of knew how to operate those types of events and make them really effective. But another reason just being that like, if you write a super detailed guide to an industry and then make it very expensive, I was always very skeptical about whether or not that could be a viable business. So the funny thing is that I didn't even want to do guides early on. I was was definitely in the camp of the round table. And the reason I say that sometimes the story changes over time is because I would love to tell you like we did did an A-B test and we were very methodical about it, but we weren't. We tested both. I think Data wise, like there was probably more support for the roundtable idea early on. And but then it just became one of those things where it was like you woke up one morning and we had been kind of waffling and all of a sudden we were just gonna do the guide. So it was a messy decision, but it ended up being a really effective one and 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 essentially handing me a career, which was kind of like for it was fortunate that I got voted down on that because it's changed it's changed my path quite a bit. But once the decision was made, we basically then tried to pre-sell the guide, right? So the team over at Trends put up a landing page. You guys were probably much more involved in this than I was. I believe it pre-sold more than 100000 I think it was like $168,000, $170,000 worth of, worth of this guide, which was just further proof like, okay, let's go in this direction. And then we set out to write the thing. And then there's a whole story that came after that in terms of like why it ended up being free, but the shortened version of that is early on, we were looking for a backend product and we decided to sell a $3,000 guide to the newsletter industry. So that's where that, I guess that's where it, that It was $3,000. That was the, the final price or the pre-sale price or the public? Uh, maybe 2,500, but somewhere around there. The plan was to, for it to end up being somewhere between like 2,500 and five grand. And I think the pre-sale was, I think it was 25. Ryan, do you, do you remember, were you part of that like pre-sale test at all? I was part of the test. I also have a very loose memory of how much it was going to end up being, but I know that it was in that range. But yeah, then you ultimately ended up being able to use it as kind of a free pull, right? Uh, as almost kind of like a, a lead magnet in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the that's the second part of the story. So after we uh, pre-sold this verified demand, I went out and started researching and writing it. So the editorial team was very much involved in like the creation of the content side. And we had an entire developer team building out a custom guide reader. And it was going to be an entire ecosystem on our site, not just for the newsletter guide, but we kind of envisioned a world where there was going to be a guide to newsletters, a guide to like D2C, a guide to hold codes, maybe something like that. So we were building this really great guide reader. And ultimately what happened was we were just about done with the project and the hustle got acquired, got acquired by HubSpot. And basically HubSpot didn't need the revenue from that project anymore. So they, you know, were generous to kind of keep 
as much of the editorial team as possible early on. But the fact that we had pre-sold like $100,000 worth of this guide just wasn't, it was like a rounding error to a company that does as much revenue as they did. So the, the project got shelved right, literally right before it launched. And it stayed that way for about nine months. And then at the beginning of 2022, I went back to my team and I said, you know, we've got this entire thing already written. And if we're not committed to making any revenue, by the way, we had to refund everybody their pre-orders. That was a whole thing. The technical project got put on hold. Like the, the guide reader is not like live, even though it's, it's basically built. But I went back to the team and said, you know, this, the guide is written. And if we're committed to just not making, not selling it as content, then let's just put it out there and try and dominate, you know, the conversation on newsletters so that we could draw people in and then maybe we'll make money by selling them on HubSpot. So yeah, that's how it ended up becoming, it's a free guide. You can go find it if you go to, I think it's just trends.co slash guide. You can go find it and it's like whatever, 300 pages on how to run a newsletter company. Can I tell you, man, that thing almost killed me though. Not because, because here's the kind of the funny thing. The whole thing was written. It was written. Design is what almost killed me. We were, In January of 2022, we basically said, okay, we're going to commit to publishing this thing. And we published the last chapter in February of 2023. <laughs> and everything in between was design. So it was a big project even after it was done. And maybe there's a, there might be like a lesson there for, for listeners too, which is like these creative projects, man, I don't know, 50% is the research and writing. And then there's a whole bunch that's just packaging, design, pre-sales, growth, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And people should check it out if they haven't already, because people listening to this podcast, they're going to be newsletter operator people. They're going to be media operators, content creators. So this is kind of like a must read resource. It's kind of the definitive work on like newsletter focused businesses, I think. And so I just wanted to point that out, but I want to dive into like some of the people you talked to research you did and just all that stuff in general. One thing I was curious about is just, you, you said you interviewed a ton of people, which who were the most interesting, most successful folks you talked to most or companies? Oh man, that's tough. I'll give you some of the, some of the, there's some outliers for sure, but I think what's tough about it is when we wrote that guide, we started working on it in 2020, which is when newsletters were, still really hadn't come into their own as a as a, a media format or a viable company. You know, and I say this a lot. Like, you have a few early players in the meet in the newsletter space. Like, I mean, who you guys know? Quartz, the Hustle's obviously one. Morning Brew is one. There's a skim. handful of them. Yeah, the Skim. But for the most part, those people were kind of looked at as like taking a weird bet on this whole email thing that you could turn it into a business. So I was fortunate in that pretty much everybody I was talking to, they all had that sort of crazy entrepreneurial edge to them that made them interesting inherently. But when I think back on it, there were a few people who really helped me crack the code. And that, that I think is what I was most proud of in terms of the project is that by talking to all these different people, we eventually kind of were able to boil it down to like a system that is universal, that's replicable, that works across different media formats. So newsletters are the way that we describe it, but this will work for podcasts, it works for video. It's it's sort of a universal model. And like all these people helped do that. But one of the most helpful ones was James Altucher. Are you guys familiar with his work? Oh yeah. He was the one who really cracked the model for me. And he basically described it like this. You know, he said, 
there's three things. There's three parts to a media company. You have your free newsletter, which is your distribution. You have your front end product and you have your back end product. And the front end product is usually like a low price subscription priced anywhere from like 50 to hundred bucks a year. And then the back end is like 500 and up and it can go all the way up into the many, many thousands of dollars. He laid it out just like that. And in, in those few sentences, it like really helped pull everybody's company together because the reality is when you look at the different companies across the industry, if you understand how that model works, you can like pick and play and with, with which pieces you put into practice. So a company like Morning Brew, I'm not sure, are they doing, they're not doing paid subscriptions at this point, right? They're still all free. I don't think so. Okay. So, so they're doing like 75 million plus dollars a year, all free subscriptions, right? So that's an example of just pulling one piece of that equation. Now you look at somebody else like the Van Trump report. A lot of people probably haven't heard of him, but Kevin Van Trump writes a newsletter about like corn and soy futures. And it's read by two groups of people, farmers and Wall Street traders. And it's because both of them care about those markets. That newsletter generates millions of dollars a year in paid subscriptions. And he's only got the paid newsletter on the back end. So if you were to parachute into the industry and look at some of these different players, it could appear as though they're all kind of pursuing different models. But what James said really tied it all together. He's like, these are the three options. Now, the kind of the most successful media companies will build all three. And the reason I say most successful is because by having all three, you you diversify the type of revenue that you're making, which, which protects you from the ups and downs of different market swings. New York Times is a great example of this. We could get into it in a little bit if you want, but it doesn't strictly mean like the most money. So the most quote unquote, most successful or like most robust media companies will build all three over time, but you can really pick and play depending on what you're most interested in. If you understand the business model, he was the one who really kind of broke that open for me. And then I've mentioned a few others like Kevin Van Trump. He's such a cool guy. Like, and he's just such an interesting person. And I think that's really what I enjoy doing is, is meeting people that you wouldn't think are killing it and just hearing them break down the ways in which they are. So that was, it was a fun project for that. I have a question about paid newsletters because a lot of the folks that are most visible to the person maybe getting into like media startups or newsletter startups are the free newsletters. So the Morning Brewer, the Hustle, Milk Road, even Industry Dive, which is bigger than all of those. $500 million plus outcome, I think, last year. And that, that those, those are all free newsletters monetized through sponsorships or, or marketing or advertising. I think the paid, I mean, there's, there's obvious examples like New York Times, but that's almost like an outlier because it's so old, right? But what are some of the most successful, you, you mentioned a great example about the Van Trump report, like any other examples of paid newsletters that people should look out for and like kind of replicate or learn from, from their business? That's a great question. So I'm trying to think of some of the people I've talked to recently. Let me think about it for a second. Are you guys working with any paid you mentioned, that you... you mentioned James Altucher and he worked with his, his company structure is kind of weird because he worked with Agora and maybe he had his own company too. And Agora is obviously the biggest successful example of this, right? I don't, there's some things I don't like about that company, but at least financially, um, they're really sharp. And so maybe we can talk about them or, or any other examples that Ryan knows of too. Definitely. That's so James is actually a great example um, because he is one of these people who is a quote unquote solo creator and is absolutely crushing it because he understands like the model of how the newsletter engine really works. He, he's got he's got all three. So he's got the 
I think it's just called the James Altucher Report, uh, which is his free newsletter that goes out. Um, then he has two or I think it's two front end products and three back end products. And you're right. They're all underneath a sub imprint of this bigger company called Agora. So I think his smaller company is called like three founders publishing or two founders publishing. But if people really look into this business, what they'll see is like basically the free newsletter. And inside of that, actually, let me break this down a little bit. So I mentioned the three different types of publications and here's how they make basically make money on a free publication. You're pretty much always monetizing via ads and affiliate deals. Then you have your front end. I said 50 to a hundred dollars. The reason it's priced that way is because that's kind of like that impulse buy zone. So you can go more expensive than that. The problem with going much more expensive is you're not sure if you would make more money by increasing the price a lot or dropping it. So that 50 to hundred is like a really good range for the front end product. And then the back end product, like I said, usually starts 500 and goes up from there. If you look at James, he has the free newsletter, I think two front and then three back. And the back end are like several thousand dollars a year. And those are very specific trading strategies, I think, that he publishes about. And that's an important note for people who are thinking about paid newsletters is that it's not just one kind, right? You have to kind of decide whether or not you're going to go front end or back end. And one of the differentiators between them is the specificity of the content. So for something that's um, really expensive, I mean, you can get really expensive, uh, but it's usually very specific and there's usually a lot of upside for the reader uh, in terms of how they're going to be applying the information and what they stand to get out of it. So if you take James, a specific trading strategy where you stand to make thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars a year on one good insight, that's that's a really compelling reason to sign up to that newsletter. You asked a really good question and I'm, I'm just kind of thinking through some of the other common challenges that like newsletter writers run into with paid media. I think this, I think the, there's a really big one, which is that a lot of newsletter writers, they rely almost more on a Patreon model for their paid subscription rather than building a newsletter that delivers tangible value. And Jacob Donnelly talks a lot about this. So Jacob Donnelly runs a media operator would probably be great to have on this show. And we interviewed him for the guide. And one of the things that he said was like a lot of paid, say, substackers struggle to build significant sized businesses off those publications because what they'll do is they'll just have a free newsletter and then they'll say something like, hey, you're on the free plan. That means you get three emails a week. If you want to get four emails a week, go to the paid plan. And the value proposition isn't really clear there for readers. Sure, if there's some readers that like love you and they just want to support you, they'll sign up. But really what you have to do is you have to take like clear, tangible financial value and then put it behind the paywall. So for trends, the idea was we're going to bring you business ideas or business breakdowns. We're going to show you how other people are building their companies. You can't get this unless you pay for it. There is no free version of trends, or at least there wasn't back then. Um, for somebody like uh, James Altucher, again, you know, he'll talk in his free newsletter about life and being an entrepreneur and stuff like that. But if you want the stock picks that he's focused on right now, you got to pay for those. And again, the the promise there is, hey, if one of these pays off, you're going to make a lot of money. In general, I think the best paid newsletters, they promise that. They promise like, I'm going to help you 
make money, save money, or save time. I borrowed that those three make money, save money, save time. I'm borrowing that from Justin Welsh. So it's a good way to think about what works for paid media, what works for courses in general. Yeah, that's a great framework because people don't, they make a paid product and they're like, you're going to learn X, but there's not really an outcome there. I want to give people a sense of scale about how big some of these paid newsletters are. And so trends, I think, I don't know how big it is now, but at one time it had 15,000 plus subscribers at $300 per year. I'm not going to do the math there right now. Do you know how big James Altucher's business was? I know like Agora in general, but do you know his numbers? When when we talked, we talked in 2020 and he told me that in 2019, the newsletter had done about $20 million. That's huge. Yeah. For, for yeah. a newsletter information business, that's huge. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Do you know even what the funnel looked like in terms of driving folks from the free to the paid to the back end? Did he, did he go into any detail of that? Or, or are there just good examples of that done right that, you, that you've seen uh, in the research that you were doing? For him, it's, it is interesting. When you look at these Agora writers, they're savvy because they work under an umbrella. Like they're all working to promote each other. So for James' newsletter, if you look at his free newsletter, there will be ads in there for other info products. And they seem random until you click through and click around a little bit and realize that they're all working under the same umbrella. They're all Agora products. And so not only does he get paid like affiliate fees for advertising on those, but his newsletter is running in other people's newsletters as well, right? So that's part of his funnel. I didn't get super detailed on exactly what the breakdown looks like from his free to front and to back end, but that is the general flow that he broke down as well. Basically what he said said is that, you know, your free product sells your front end and then your front end sells your back end. And you're basically stepping people into more specific types of content as you go. So I keep harping on Kevin Van Trump, but it's because he's an interesting example of somebody who doesn't have a super robust funnel. If you look at his website, he's basically got a free trial of the newsletter and then you either keep it or you don't, right? So I think what I what I like about that is like, I don't know, this might, this might be sort of a disappointing answer for two guys who are like so knowledgeable on growth. Coming from the outside as somebody who's not super growth oriented and I, and I get overwhelmed by some of the funnels and the tools and the data and the metrics, what I, what I noticed was that it is possible to do this in sort of a simple, a simple way, like a Kevin Van Trump. Basically, everybody gets dumped into Salesforce and then they go on a trial if, if they stick around, they get charged. If they, if they cancel, they go on like a backlist and then he sends emails, you know, to that list every once in a while, trying to reactivate them. Pretty simple and straightforward, but incredibly effective as well. When I talked to him, I think the newsletter was doing something on the order of like seven to 10 million. And again, that was back in 2020. So I do think that a trial is a really good mechanism, especially for a paid newsletter, especially on the front end. It's something that we tested over and over again with trends, and we saw how successful it was. And to your earlier point, it speaks to the need to provide value upfront, especially within like a, any sort of paid newsletter. To your point, media companies, newsletters that I've worked with, where the paid newsletter is more of that Patreon model that you mentioned, and you see it in like their their feedback forms or their why did you sign up for for this newsletter? Why did you why did you upgrade? when they're collecting product data, almost all of the answers are, oh, 
we just love what you do and we wanted to support you. And what you find is it's not super scalable and it's pretty high churn too, because, you know, when they uh, get to the point where they either don't want to pay for it anymore or can't afford it, uh, there isn't the value that's keeping them. Yeah. It's the first thing to go, especially in times like this, where like the economy might seem a little bit shaky or people aren't completely sure where their next paycheck is coming from. You got to be given that value in order to continue like collecting money. So, I mean, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, last time we spoke was on your podcast, Copy Blogger Podcast. I'm really curious to know how Copy Blogger's whole ecosystem fits together, how their funnel works, how the podcast is a part of that. I know they're basically this media ecosystem. They've got a blog, they've got an email series, there's a tool set they're driving to. So ultimately, how does how does that, their funnel work from a media perspective, media to product or tool set? And then how does the podcast all fit into that? That's actually, so this is a really interesting question and I'll cover a couple aspects of it. Broadly speaking, we're still figuring some of this out and I am primarily involved as talent on the podcast. I don't have a, like a major business stake in it, but, but Tim and I talk about this a lot. And so here's what it looks like at a high level. Copy bloggers got the sort of free distribution through an email newsletter that goes out once a week, plus SEO, like SEO is a huge part of their strategy for pulling people in and trying to get them on the list. The front end product is something called Copy Blogger Academy, which is kind of like trends. It's basically a paid subscription that'll teach you how to write, make money on your blogging. And then the back end is actually an agency um, and it's agency services for copywriting, SEO, stuff like that. Tim can speak to this in much more detail than I can, but the, the idea when he first bought into that company was, and a lot of people don't realize this, so Copy Blogger had a, like a big reputation as, as part of a large company. And it was, it was, it was part of a large company, but it wasn't the revenue generating part of a large company. And so when Brian started, the original founder started selling off some of like the sub brands, Copy Blogger itself didn't really have a clear path to a lot of revenue. So when Tim came in... And what, what company the, was that, by the way? I keep wanting to call it. It was something associated with WordPress. I would I would talk to Tim about it. He has much more of the detail. Okay, we'll I find think. it at it in the notes. Yeah, it, I, it bothers me that I can't think of it right now. But th- I, there was one aspect of it that was quite successful. They had a whole podcast network as well. And this was like back in the days before podcasting was really seen as like a very valuable business solution. But then... The, uh, Brian sold the original company. And with that went a lot of the revenue generation for the business. So when Tim came in, the first really clear thing that he saw as an opportunity was the agency service. And that's because he comes from an agency background. And so inside of our three-part model of like free front-end, back-end, agency would fall into that back-end category. And it's not quite the same thing as a high-priced paid newsletter, but it is high-priced right? And, you know, if you're keeping clients around, it's it's similar to a subscription product. So he actually works with an outside agency to sell their services as an affiliate. And that has become his backend product. Now, there's a very close relationship between those two. It's more, it's much closer than like a normal affiliate would be because Tim helps kind of advises on, on the agency side, but that's basically it. Free content leads to a paid subscription, copy blogger Academy, and then also works to try and upsell people to agency services. And I believe combined again, don't quote me on this because I'm not as involved on the business side of copy blogger. I'm more just talent, 
But I'm pretty sure that the agency is doing seven figures a year. And copy bloggers take on that is probably in the six figure range at this point. I'm not sure though. Incredibly small team though. I'm pretty sure it's just Tim. And then he has one person who's doing a lot of the writing. Oh, that's really cool. I think the agency thing as a back end is really interesting. And not yeah. a lot of companies think about that. You you run trends about the I forget the sales company name, but the Newsette in Newland, their their agency. Yeah. And that's been a big success. Maybe you can share like those numbers really quickly. We won't spend a ton of time on it, but like and maybe yeah. how other media companies could partner with agencies to add a revenue stream. Absolutely. So the Newsette's gotta be one of my favorite free newsletters because they punch way above their weight class. So for people who haven't heard of them, it's kind of like Morning Brew, but but more specific, it's it's daily tech and business news for sort of like up and coming job folk, like it's women, but it's business news as well. So it's business news for women in business. And they kill it. They, they, they absolutely kill it. They have a very small list, comparatively speaking, it's about 500,000 people. But in 2021, they drove $40 million in revenue. Which, you know, to put that in perspective, by the time Morning Brew hit those numbers, they had something like 3 million subscribers and 70 people on staff. Newsette, as I said, like less than, it's, it's roughly half a million subscribers at the time. And I think they had 12 people on staff. It's just absolutely nuts how far above their weight class they punch. And the way they do it, about half that revenue is from ads in the free newsletter. And the other half is from clients on this, what you said, Newland, their, their, their agency, which they spun up on the back end. Now, there's an interesting part of this that I don't think gets discussed very often, which is all of this only really works if you focus on the readers first. So it's fine to talk about the business model of ads versus subscriptions and like how to maximize revenue and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, Ryan, you said this earlier, great content is great content. You can't really make up for not having great content. And the second part of that is like, you've got to take care of your readers. So when the Newsette was building, one of the reasons they keep their list small is because they want it to be small and focused and incredibly active. And that creates this cascading effect of like, every time an advertiser signs up for them, the advertiser just gets cr crazy great results. So the advertisers keep buying. Now, all of a sudden they try to sell additional content strategy uh, uh, services to these advertisers who are already having great effects in their newsletter. And it's just an easier sell there as well. So it's a super interesting company. By the way, have you seen the other mental health newsletter that she started up? The the founder of Newsdesk got yeah, another project. I work, I work with them. That's grown really quickly too. Yeah. I don't work super closely just on acquisition and stuff, paid ads, but that one's going to be probably much bigger. It probably already is on the traffic side. We mentioned this when it first got announced. They got that funding from Serena Williams and a whole bunch of other people valued the newsletter. What was it? A hundred million dollars before they even published a single issue, right? Really? I, I didn't know. I didn't know about the valuation. I know they're raised. That's, it was that's, something. That's really good. Yeah, it was crazy. So she kills it. It's I, She's going to be one of my favorite media founders. And we're talking about Daniela Peterson, I think is her I name, right? Pe Pearson? I think it's Pearson. Pearson. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't I don't know how to pronounce it exactly. Okay, awesome. And that, that's really cool because it's like an upsell to the, you buy an ad in the newsletter or ads and you, if it works well, you make sense to buy more from that company. And then now they're able to do that with the agency, which is huge. Yeah. I've also seen other really creative versions of this. And again, it all falls into the same model though. Free front end, back end, free front end, back end. I've seen this on the travel side where travel media creators will have, say, an Instagram account. 
that is like super inspirational. And again, they're monetizing that through the same thing, ads and affiliate deals, right? All on the Instagram. And then they'll sell camera presets on the front end. Uh, and they'll have like a vacation rental on the back end. So an Airbnb that they're able to monetize over and above what other Airbnbs in the area go for because they're building on that star power. And it's, again, slight variations, but they're all kind of leaning towards the same topic, free front and back end. So if you really understand it, kind of a magical unlock for, for me when I saw it, and it's been helpful to other people to just think through their business model that way. One thing I want to add to the, the front end is like, why have, why would people have a front end when they can just have a, a back end, maybe focus on that. The front end I've, I've heard from some Agora folks is buyers are buyers. Buyers will buy your other stuff. So if you get someone to buy a $50 product, they're much more likely to buy your $2,000 product. And so that's why that's many reasons why the front end exists, but that's one of them. Oh, I like that. That's a great point. Have you guys seen any data on profitability of front end newsletters? Cause I've heard some people like, you could imagine there's some creators out there who make a ton of money on their like a front end priced newsletter. Then I have others who have said it's essentially a loss leader for, for the back end. Have you seen any data on either? For, for Agora, it's definitely a loss leader. But for a smaller scale company, it could be a great um, profit engine. But for Agora, they you know they don't make money until like three to six months out after someone purchases that front end. And they immediately upsell the back end in most cases and then sell it through email sequences and retargeting and stuff. So I guess it maybe depends on what, what level you're at because you start to spend more on marketing, the payback period extends further maybe. I don't know. I don't have a ton of data on it. Yeah. Have you seen that too, Ryan? I mean, I, I was thinking, I'm sure maybe in terms of time invested, they could seem, I mean, not quite sure on the data, but like writing a, a highly valuable paid newsletter is probably a, a big time investment. It's interesting, I feel like, and, and maybe segues to a little bit more to trends and also to Hampton, but like the community aspect, like a paid community as a front-end product, that to me is really interesting as well. And maybe maybe a little bit more profitable in terms of time invested. Obviously, you need a community manager to run a great community. But yeah, I, I know that you've spent a ton of time on community, Ethan, on perfecting and testing. And now you're obviously over at Hampton where, you know, you, what you guys have built, the community there is incredible. A question that I had around that is what are some of the lessons that you took from trends from, from building community there and all the testing that, that you did and, and kind of learning through doing, how have those lessons been applied to the community in Hampton to create the, the amazing experience that it is? Okay. So first of all, thank you. I'm not sure if Ryan has said this publicly, but he's a member of Hampton. So great to have you over there. I'm glad you're liking the experience so much so far. When we think about working on that community, there's a few things that I'll get really tactical because I think a lot of people try to talk about the community and it's a little bit wishy-washy. It's a little bit fluffy. It's hard to kind of grab onto. So here's how we think about it in like the most concrete terms. When I was brought in to do that, I was brought in to do a couple of very specific things. One is routinely spark conversation in our main channels. So for us, we use Slack. And for a long time, there were two Slack channels. There was a general channel and there was an intros channel. And we specifically kept the conversation in both of those places and didn't let it splinter. One of my first jobs was to very specifically come in and make sure we were sparking conversation there every single day. So that's one thing. The other thing we would do is introduce members to the group and then introduce members to each other. So those three things um, 
basically work to help crank the engine of a successful community. And I think this is where a lot of community builders struggle is because there it is sort of easy to assume that if you just bring a group of people together and they have enough in common and they're interesting enough, they'll automatically gel and start talking. And that hasn't really been the case in any community that I've seen so far. The best communities that I've ever been a part of or seen, they take an injection of energy in order to create the kind of like culture and experience that you want. So Sam Parr, founder of Hustle and of Hampton, he's really good at this. I learned a ton from him just working with him over the years, but it really boils down to those, those three things. Like what am I putting in this channel every day to like spark the kinds of conversations that I want to see happen? And then how am I introducing members to get people excited to meet each other and facilitating those types of connections? You do that long enough and you start to create a culture of that and then other members catch on and, and, and ideally it snowballs. And we're actually lucky. We're getting to a point now where the community is still relatively small, 300-ish people, but the amount of like introductions and people hanging out and like resources people are sharing, it's quickly getting to the point where it's like, it's, it's even hard for me to keep up with it and it's my full-time job. So if you, you know, stick with that for six or seven months, like you can see really great outcomes. Awesome. I think we have to wrap here, but where can people find you? Social media, website, yeah. what would make sense to shout out? I think the best place to find me is on Twitter. I am at damn Ethan, uh, damn underscore Ethan on Twitter. You can check out Hampton at joinhampton.com. I think we're at Hampton Founders on Twitter, if you want to try and keep up with what we're doing there. And other than that, I guess the Copy Blogger Podcast, if you want to hear about other copy stuff. Thanks for having me on, guys. This was fun. It's great to see you. I want to you gotta turn the tables next time so I can learn more about growing newsletters. Yeah, thanks for coming on. That'll be fun. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow the Newsletter Operator Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give us a five-star rating to help support the show. If you want to learn even more about how to grow and monetize a newsletter, go to newsletteroperator.com. And if you'd like to work with Matt or Ryan directly, check the links in the description and apply to work with our agencies. 